Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Foley associate Kate Clendenin. Kate is a brand new associate. In fact, so brand new that at the time of recording this episode, she was only three weeks into practice at Foley. But it was important for me to have Kate on because... I really endeavor on this show to show lawyers who are at all inflection points of their career, including those who have just started. So Kate is a member of the litigation department in Foley's New York office. She started just three weeks ago. And in this discussion, I get her to reflect on growing up in Scotts Valley, California, attending the University of California, Los Angeles for undergrad, and attending NYU School of Law. Because we don't have to unpack much when it comes to Kate's day-to-day practice because she is just starting, we spend quite a bit of time talking about her journey and her experience growing up in California. And in particular, she shares about the impact of her Nicaraguan heritage, as well as how her mother's profession as a court reporter impacted her decision to become a lawyer. We then jump into her decision and how she navigated going to college and selecting a law school. And we spend a fair amount of time actually discussing success in law school, the law school application process, and just those things that we wish we had known when we were navigating law school. We then transition into Kate talking about how it is Foley came onto the scene, what caused her to select Foley and Lardner, and also how it's been starting at Foley these last few weeks, and in particular, her experience at Foley's new associate orientation. We then end the show with Kate highlighting the importance of embracing your authentic self, even as a brand new attorney. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Kate. Kate, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to have you start like the way I have everybody start, which is to give a brief professional introduction. Sure. So my name is Kate Clendenin. I grew up in the California Bay Area. I went to undergraduate school at UCLA in Los Angeles. I went to law school at NYU School of Law in New York City. Between undergrad and law school, I took time off to live in Ecuador, where I worked for a nonprofit that focused on sustainable community development. And now you are a brand new associate in which practice group? Yes, I'm a brand new associate in our litigation practice group. So as I was telling you, I'm excited to have you here because I've been on a little bit of a hiatus for the show. And this is the sort of things that a professional podcast host wouldn't say because (laughs) someone could be listening to this in two years and it won't feel like a hiatus to them. Sure. But I am already stumbling over my words. So we're just going to, I'm just going to shake it out a little bit as we're talking and jump back into the getting used to hosting these shows. But I'm so excited you're here. You just started. We were together recently down in Dallas for Foley's first year orientation. Mm Mm-hmm. And you were kind enough to follow up with me. And I was like, hey, do you want to be on the show? So here you are. So this is how the podcast works. I would say a good percentage of the time it's someone emailing me to say something to me and me being like, do you want to be on the show? (laughs) (laughs) So 
So I wish I could say it was produced in a much more thoughtful manner. Sometimes it is, but I'm also all about seizing opportunities. So let's start in talking about your life. I'd love for you to start somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sure. So I was born in San Francisco, but I grew up, I usually tell people that I grew up in Santa Cruz, California, which is this smaller beach town that is more well-known than the town that I actually grew up in. More specifically, it's called Scotts Valley, which is right along the border of Santa Cruz. Scotts Valley is very interesting because it is a very small town, and it's also a I forget the exact statistic, but it's about 93% white community. And my background is mixed. My father is white, but my mother is Nicaraguan. She came to the United States when she was about 15 years old, fleeing the revolution, the uprising that happened in Nicaragua in the 70s. So although I am mixed and in my household, we did predominantly speak English, my mother did make sure that my Nicaraguan heritage had a front seat throughout my life. So I grew up going to Nicaragua during the summers, things like that. So although I did grow up in a pretty white community, I was also very aware of my Nicaraguan heritage. And what I'm also hearing you saying is I lived in a place that was 93% white and I was not, at least not fully. I culturally, you know, also strongly identify with being Nicaraguan, which causes that to be a different experience. So I appreciate you adding that clarity. And I have a feeling we're going to talk more about it over the next 40 or so minutes. But what was it like growing up in actually, see, now I have Santa Cruz in my head. What did you say the town was? Scotts Valley. (laughs) Scotts Valley. So like the mailing address would have said Scotts Valley. Tell Mm -hmm. me, give me a little snippet of little Kate, I don't know, fourth through sixth grade. What was your life like? What was it like growing up in Scotts Valley? Sure. So Scotts Valley, like I said, very small town. Honestly, because it's such a small town, I did spend most of my time in Santa Cruz. So that's why I tell people I grew up in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is known for its beaches and it's also hiking trails. Yeah, but I thought like beaches, I thought surfing, maybe even skateboarding. That's like what comes to mind is this Midwesterner hears the word Santa Cruz. Right, exactly. And I did grow up in like that surfing community. The unfortunate thing is because Santa Cruz is definitely known for surfing, but it's actually really hard to break into the surfing community if you don't have parents that teach you from a very young age. A lot of out-of-towners, tourists, they come and they try to take surfing lessons around that area and they find that the locals are not too friendly if they cut them off or think they have very little patience for that. So basically the only way that you can break into that community is if you have a parent who teaches you and I did not have a parent who taught me, but I know enough about surfing that I definitely can speak as though I surf. I don't. That's really interesting. It is not at all the same. <laughs> but my <laughs> my parallel is I did not play sports growing up. As okay. So the first time I ever did anything somewhat athletic was middle school, attempting softball, which is very low stakes, and then freshman year of high school, trying soccer. And I come to learn, you can't just start playing soccer at 14. Right. Turns out you're just not going to be good at it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that is very different. But I imagine also you get, if your parents taught you some people or some kids had been on surfboards since they were mm-hmm. probably three or four. And so to walk in at the age of 14 or 24 or 36, people sort of look at you like, who are you? Right. No, that's actually a really good point. I think it is true for most sports. I hadn't thought of it that way. But basically, like if you don't get in there before like the age of eight, you kind of miss the boat. (laughs) Or it's kind of it is hard to get into it. And yeah, it was difficult for me. But what I did 
my beachy spin on that, I guess, my hometown was that I grew up doing what's known as junior guards. It's like the summer camp where they train you. It's for people from the age of six to, I think, about 16 years old, which is how long I was in the program. They basically train you to become a beach lifeguard. That's kind of how, yeah, it starts from a very young age. So when I was as young as six years old, I was out in the Pacific Ocean at seven o'clock in the morning swimming. (laughs) And it was something that I really genuinely enjoyed. Now being 26 years old, I don't understand how I stuck with that for 10 years, but it was something I looked forward to every year. That's amazing. So that's a summer thing mostly? It's a summer thing. It's a summer thing only. It was like a summer camp type situation, lasted all the summer. And there was like a morning and afternoon session. And somehow... I think my mom made this decision. Ultimately, I was in the morning session, which started at like 7.45. So you're a strong swimmer. I am. I am a strong we swimmer. learned anything about Kate today is that she's a strong swimmer. <laughs> yes, I can if, bring those skills to her legal practice. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. What about other interests or hobbies? I mean, whether it be TV shows, classes you loved, books you were into, what do you remember about that time as a kid? I remember that I really loved art. Another constant in my life was going to art class and doing these paintings and stuff. And I remember one time I entered into an art contest at this like local place. It was called the Seymour Center, I believe. And it was like this local little aquarium place. And I entered this watercolor painting. I did of a pelican and I got first place. And that was like my claim to fame for like the next six years. I couldn't let that How go. How old I was were you proud. at that time? I think when I won, I was probably around I want to say like eight years old. I was pretty young. You know, my parents proudly displayed that on their mantle. And I I think to this day, it's still there. And it's like fading in color. (laughs) I love how you said you coasted on it. Like you, that was your claim to fame for about six years. So you were 14 being like, look at Look at the pelican. No, I was still really like low key. I wouldn't bring it up to my friends, but I'd come home. My parents would proudly point to it. And I'd sit there kind of like silently proud too, but pretending like, oh no, don't talk about it. But I was very proud (laughs) Look at how good how look at how good I was in eighth grade. Yeah, or not. Sorry, when I was eight, not eighth. When grade. I was when eight, I was yeah. eight. Yeah, not not eighth grade. I was still pretty young. <laughs> now tell me also about if you had siblings or even any just I don't know highlights about your parents. We know your your mother came from Nicaragua, but once again, I'm trying to paint sure. the picture because part of this show and there's a lot of things I like to cover is just to show listeners. Most of us didn't come to this world knowing we wanted to be a lawyer. There were sure. likely things that we were doing in childhood that had nothing to do with that. Yeah. So anything that gives a better sense of of you, feel free to highlight. And then we're, of course, going to move on to talk about high school and college no and all problem. that fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was just me and my sister. My sister, Claire, she's four years younger than me, but we're very, very close. My parents are together. It, my father, like I said, he's white. He grew up in the Oakland area. My mother grew up in Nicaragua. It was just our little family home. We had a dog, a cat. Neither of my parents are attorneys. Nobody in my family is an attorney, although I will say my mother was and still is a court reporter in the California state courts. So I had a little that bit of exposure. That is super interesting. As a former litigator, that is so interesting. To yeah, me. yeah. <laughs> it was really cool. And I had a very different take really on what it means to be a lawyer. Like I knew when I was meeting these different kind of public defenders and district attorneys and judges, it was always very clear to me that these people were very intelligent and 
just strong in their own right. And it was something that I definitely looked up to, but I never didn't really totally understand what was going on behind the scenes. But you were getting some exposure to her professional kind of sphere or network. How would that come about? Sure. So I had asthma growing up. I still have asthma, but it was a lot worse when I was young. And so some days I wouldn't be able to go to school. And if my parents couldn't find last minute childcare, I would go to work with my mother because my father, he worked in like a business setting. And so it wasn't as flexible. Whereas my mother, she could get permission from like her judge or something to have me come to work with her. And if she needed to be in court, she would get permission for me to sit with the bailiff in court. (laughs) That's amazing. And she's like, here, honey, work on drawing your pelicans. Literally. (laughs) Literally. Yes. Yes. And I would be sitting there not really knowing what was going on. And it kind of really just became this kind of almost ubiquitous setting for me because, yeah, I grew up going to work with my mom. I was very comfortable in that setting. I remember also like in high school, my freshman year, I got in trouble and I was like grounded for all the spring break. So what I did for my spring break is I went to work with my mom in the mornings. The, the judges there would give me these, I don't know, just little tasks to do, like update their little law books where they had these inserts that you had to peel off the sticker behind it and put it into the book. And they had me do these little odd tasks and I was okay with it. And it was interesting now because I remember, for example, there's this one judge who I was particularly close with. And he, even for one year, he brought my birthday cake to my birthday party. And then just the other week I was talking to my mom about him and she was like, oh yeah, he actually is like very, not only respected, but feared in the courtroom. He's like a very hardcore judge. You're like, oh, him? The guy yeah. I used to hang out with when I was nine? Oh, I never I guess got so. that sense. He was kind of like, you know, just another grandparent almost, or not not grandparent, he wasn't, but like another uncle, except another extended family. So it was really interesting, but I really enjoyed it. And as I went through kind of like college and like did internships. I I got internships with like public defender's office. I also did an internship Mm -hmm. at the district attorney's office. So my background's kind of in the government side of litigation and like attorneys who are in the courtroom every single day, which is a very different, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but it was, it was, you know, it was very different idea as opposed to when I came to law school and started becoming more familiar with the law firm environment where Mm -hmm. the goal is to not see a courtroom, hopefully. It's really just so interesting, though, to get that exposure early on, not even realize it's happening, but sort of demystifying what can be really mystifying for those of us who don't have that experience. Right. And also, you were a junior guard and like a junior clerk or a junior extern at times, is what it sounds like. Yeah. Also, I will admit I have some level of fascination with court clerks or anybody or any that anyone who could do a transcription clerk isn't the right term because the of the thing yeah the stenographer everything they're pressing i've had stenographers yell at me because i talk too fast yep. all that stuff that mm-hmm. I, and just it's really neat because it's not they're not typing for those who haven't seen it just for the listeners they're not typing on your normal like laptop keyboard right, right. they are typing on something that looks very different and appears to only have like four buttons or whatever. Yeah, it yeah. It's even weird to me. And like the keys have like Velcro on it. It's, it's oh, very- I didn't know that. Yeah. Or at least my mom's does. I don't know if that's typical, but it's all shorthand. And then later they have to literally transcribe it into normal form. And yeah, it is really interesting, especially because my mother came to the United States, not knowing how to speak any English whatsoever. 
And so she had to learn the English language, especially becoming a court reporter. And when she went to court reporting school, she actually was still not very familiar with the English language. So she had to kind of learn. She learned from scratch. And so to this day, she's very much a stickler for grammar. And I feel like her mind is just so wired that way now that if I speak a certain way and I have certain language ticks, for, for example, growing up, my mom would always get so upset whenever we'd use the word like over and over again. Like or um or yes, uh. Yes, all of that. She knows what it's look like, looks like yes. to write that down. Yes. Also, we will get, we'll talk maybe more about this one, not specifically, but because we're talking about getting transcripts and transcribing, <laughs> something that I didn't know when I first started practicing. And I like to think technology has changed because I started practicing like 15 years ago. When you're a litigator and a partner asks you to get the rough transcript and you're like, okay, (laughs) it looks a little bit different. It's not as cleaned up. It's going to have issues. It's because of what you just said, because they were taking it shorthand. Mm -hmm. This was what they could crank out for you very quickly, end of day, after that deposition or maybe after whatever hearing. And then the nice, pretty ones are after they've gone through. And that was something that until you're actually practicing, you're probably not going to see. But let's move forward a little bit because that was an amazing insight into life growing up. And also (laughs) kudos to your mom who very much closed the gap on learning English and and then some. Tell me about high school. I don't know, brief words about high school, but then really going on to college, where did you go? How did you navigate that process? What was that like for you? Sure. High school was a really interesting time for me. I was always very involved in high school. I was in student government for all four years. I was a part of various clubs and whatnot. But what was interesting to me, I mean, something interesting that happened to me was, I guess, my senior year when my Spanish teacher asked me to be a part of this, like, anti-bullying task force, which was really interesting because, you know, as I said, growing up in Scotts Valley, it is like, it's not just predominantly like 60, 40 white community. It is. It's a 93% white community. And that was very much reflected in the demographic of our high school. We had some Latino students, not that many. And to be perfectly honest with you, I wasn't really close with any of them. And I wasn't too familiar with what their experiences were. Me being a person who I consider myself white passing. So I wasn't really treated too differently in school. People were definitely aware of the fact that I was Nicaragua and every summer when I came back from Nicaragua, I'd bring people trinkets and gifts and things. Mm-hmm. But my experience was very different from other Latinx students in my high school. And the reason why my Spanish teacher asked me to join this anti-bullying task force was because she knew that I was very still very connected to my culture, but she also knew that there were other students that were part of the student body who were being basically ostracized because of their culture. Mm -hmm. And so she basically put me on this task force to kind of help figure out a way to bridge the gap. And I guess that's kind of when I realized that, oh, this thing that makes me different is something that, you know, for other people who are similarly situated, it's not something they embrace. It's something that is actually used to kind of put them in a corner. It's something yeah, that separates Yeah, or to them. be othered. It's, right. it's othering. And it's interesting because I think your teacher probably noticed that you, you, you use the word a bridge, but she probably saw you as a bit of a bridge in the sense of you were navigating two worlds. I know you, you mentioned 
white passing. And I think everybody who's listening would know what that meant. But in terms of when someone meets you, they're not going to necessarily assume your background or heritage or treat you differently. And what's otherwise a mostly homogenous community, but you're also sharing cultural background and other things with people that were being, particularly in high school, because, you know, Teenagers can just be mean. So (laughs) mean, so mean. Lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. But I think for some people, particularly if there's someone who maybe is bullying someone and it's like, but they're friends with Kate and they're going to turn around and bully someone else actually who's maybe also from Nicaragua but presents differently. It kind of starts pointing out the hypocrisy in that and how you really shouldn't treat anybody differently. But that's really interesting and kind of putting you in that advocacy position in high school. Yeah. Well, so, and that, I mean, I don't want to take too much credit because it just, this didn't happen until senior year, but that was something that really changed my perspective and was certainly something that just took a kind of permanent place in the front of my mind as I moved forward through college and through undergraduate school and through law school. And then, you know, going into college, I ended up at UCLA I don't have any story for how I aspired to go to UCLA. Actually, I really did not think I was going to go to UCLA. So what was the thought process? Yeah, where did you think you were going to go? Yeah, so I wanted to go to like the East Coast. I wanted to be as far away as possible. But with the UC system, you know, for listeners who are not familiar with how that works, the UC system is like one application for the most, I think, I don't know, maybe it's different to this day, but it's one application when I did it and you just check the boxes for what schools you want to send it off to. So the reason why it went to UCLA was because it was just a matter of me kind of checking that box. Mm -hmm. I remember when like the UCs came out with their acceptances and stuff. I found out I went to UCLA. A lot of people were asking me, oh my gosh, are you so excited? Are you going to go? What do you think? And I remember telling them, I'm not I'm not that excited. Like, I mean, it's cool, I guess, but like, I don't see myself in LA because this was me. Mind you, I'm trying to get out of here. I'm trying to go to the other side of the country. Right. And also too, I grew up in this town. Santa Cruz is just very much kind of like very, very liberal, very kind of like hippie, beachy. And people there very much had this like stereotypical idea of what Los Angeles was. It's plastic. It's fake. Mm. It's a little snooty. And that was kind of like, that was my conception of what it was like down there. And so that's why I wasn't too interested. I had never been down there myself. Yeah, I wanted to go out to the East Coast. I was looking at some East Coast schools, but my mom just, I guess she had a feeling. She's like, look, we'll go look at these East Coast schools, but only if you promise me though, that we can also look at UCLA. And I said, sure. So we went out to the East Coast. We flew out in like April. It was miserable. It was super cold, super windy. Oh, that happens in L- Okay, yeah. go on. <laughs> <laughs> it was we went to Rhode Island and it was it was really cold, really windy, not fun. Oh, I thought you were saying in LA. Yeah, this oh, part yeah. of the world no, that no, time yeah. of the year, Sorry, not this yes. part. The East Coast and not yet real spring. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. cold. It's still it, winter. Exactly. It wasn't something that I was expecting. I mean, long story short, we toured the campus and it just wasn't really for me. I liked it because it was like, it was a school with a long history and there was prestige. And I was like very impressed by all of that. But ultimately I didn't really connect with the student body. But I think if you would ask me like right after that tour, what'd you think of it? I was like, oh yeah, sure. I'm going there. But like that was more because I was wanted to convince myself. Then mm-hmm. we go immediately to UCLA and I realized that there's like this very strong sense of collegiality there are all these student groups that people are very excited about. There's a lot of enthusiasm. There's like, you know, football team, basketball team, everyone's rallying around that. There's just so much school spirit. 
and being and your weather is pretty solid the weather is also great <laughs> I, I yeah I can't lie the weather is great and yeah it just it just it all clicked for me and when I got to see of course the culture of Los Angeles for myself and realized that you know the stereotypes and the rumors they weren't true that wasn't my experience and it just it really felt like a good fit and so that's how I decided yeah. that I was gonna end up there what I've learned from people from California it's also I think a pretty good deal for a really great school like UCLA is a, a great school and there's a ton of different UC system schools which gets really really confusing to me with all the letters sure. <laughs> but at the end of the day often you're just like this is a great school and I'm getting whatever sort of California resident yes whatever for it. Yeah, which was significant because the other school that I was looking at too was literally twice the price. And my dad being as kind of like, he's always been very money minded. And he's like, look, it's not worth it. He's like, especially if you end up going to grad school or something, you know, there, people aren't going to pay as much attention to like, you know, where you went to college, like just go where it feels right. And UCLA felt right for me. So go where it feels right and is going to save everyone a bit of money. Exactly. Please. <laughs> So what was your major at UCLA? So I started in political science. Going into undergraduate school, I knew that I was actually interested in going to law school. Actually going back a bit, I think the first time I officially decided I wanted to be a lawyer was when I was in eighth grade. We had this like constitution test and I ended up scoring pretty high. And my teacher was like, you know, you should consider being a lawyer. And I was like, okay, sure. And so that was that's when it became kind of an idea. And then in high school, I did mock trial and it solidified a bit more. So then going into undergrad, I knew that law school was something that was in the future for me. So I did political science just because I'd heard that that was something that a lot of... It's basically, it's basically pre-law. And I will right. admit, I just kind of giggled to myself when you talked about in eighth grade, the teacher being like, you should consider law school. After and you briefly being like, right, no, but you briefly being like, but did you see this pelican that I drew I when I was eight? Too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but what about an artist? You don't think it could be the next Picasso? Are you kidding? No. <laughs> but no, I, I definitely understand because I, I essentially was pre-law and undergrad, but it's if you know you're going to go to law school, oftentimes it's some form of poli sci or philosophy or something like that as undergrad. Right. Yeah. And so th that's what I started out. But I actually ended up changing to human biology and society, which is very Ooh. different. Yeah. The reason for the change was that, I don't know, just political science didn't really click for me. I didn't really enjoy those classes. I'm it very well could have been because I wasn't taking the right ones and I just didn't click with the professors, but ultimately it just wasn't a good fit for me. I ended up taking this one class that was about the intersections between the politics, the legality, the ethics, and the science of stem cell research. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, it was taught by a ethicist who's a really cool professor. I took it as a GE course, so it was just kind of like a happy accident. <laughs> and, yeah, and then it was, hey, I want to do more of this. Right, I really fell in love with it, and so I asked the professor how I could do more of that, and she said she pointed me in the direction of this new major. So I did that with a concentration in bioethics and public science policy. And then was the thought still, and then I'll go on to law school, or yeah. was there ever any thought of anything else? No, the thought was always to go to law school. There was a thought that maybe, perhaps, if for some reason law school didn't work out, maybe I would go on to become a genetic counselor because UCLA mm -hmm. did create that major in anticipation of this genetic counseling education program that they were going to roll out, which they didn't roll out until actually, I think, after I graduated. I think it's there now. But that's what the major was 
intended for, though a lot of people went through that major that had aspirations to go on to medical school or go into public health, things like that. But that's really interesting. Yeah, it was really cool. I studied a lot of genetics. I secretly like was really hoping that maybe the area of privacy law that deals with like genetic testing, like 23andMe and all that, I was hoping that it was going to boom a lot more and Mm. it hasn't grown quite as much. And it's a very niche area. So I haven't really gotten into any of that, but I was thinking, oh, maybe that could happen. I don't know. It was mostly about me changing into that major is mostly about just me learning about something that I thought was really interesting. And this is also the part in the podcast where as the host of the show, on the off chance, there's like college students who listen and it happens, someone Mm -hmm. thinking about law school. Turns out you don't have to be quote unquote pre-law to go to law school. And I actually think people are really well served by not. I mean, I was the stereotypical philosophy major before law school and that's fine too. Right. But you can actually major in whatever you want prior Mm -hmm. to law school. And there's a lot to be said for it being something very different from law school or even like English, just because writing is really important. People who do engineering, that kind of uses another part of your brain before the law school part. I just think sometimes people don't realize that you could truly focus on any undergraduate, just get your bachelor's and then you could go to law school if you want to. No, you're absolutely right. I remember when I was taking a test prep course for the LSAT, it was led by a guy who had gone to University of Chicago Law School, and he was a theater major in undergraduate school, and he was scoring, he scored super high on the LSAT. Like, it really, it doesn't matter what you major in, as long as it's something, from my personal perspective, as long as it's something that you enjoy, from somebody who's very, like, strict about numbers and getting into the best law school, as long as it's something that you can get, you know, pull good grades from, that's really what it comes down to. It's not so much about, they're not looking at people being like, oh, but was she poli sci? Yes. Well, and it turns out that a lot of different areas of concentration in college can correlate to various practice areas of Absolutely. law. Um, and you'll actually come in with some working knowledge of either that industry or foundational mm-hmm. principles, which is something we don't actually talk that much about. But right. okay, so you get that major, you knew law school, you mentioned test prep. What's your thought process for law school? What's the timing? Where did you go? All that fun sure. stuff. Sure. So... After UCLA, similar to in high school, I was very, very involved in lots of student groups at UCLA. And then on top of that, too, I was trying to get really good grades. So by the time graduation was like rolling around, I found that I was very burnt out and I wanted to take time off. I thought about like, what is something that I can do with this year that I would probably never otherwise get the opportunity to do. And so I decided I wanted to live in Nicaragua to connect more with my culture, to develop kind of like my own relationship with the country. Mm-hmm. So I looked into nonprofits that I could work with in Nicaragua. And there was this one nonprofit called Mana Project. And they had a site in Nicaragua. I applied to work there. I got the job. But then two weeks after I got the job, there was a civil uprising that broke out in Nicaragua, which was really unfortunate. Everything there became very unstable. In fact, my cousins even were because there was an uprising that was led mostly by college-aged people. And so my cousins, who are also around my age, they were actually sent out of the country because the government was actually retaliating against people that they suspected were a part of this uprising who were around that age. So it was, yeah, it, was, it became very unsafe. Eventually, Manor Project told me that they couldn't host volunteers there because of just how unsafe it was. Mm-hmm. And so they they offered me a position at their site in Ecuador. And I'd never been to Ecuador before. I had no idea what to expect, but I was like, well, I mean, this is my year off and it's let's still go. Latin America. Yeah, let's go. And so I did it. 
and it was incredible. I'm so glad that I did it because I don't know that I would have really ventured too much into South America had it not been for that experience. And Ecuador just to this day really holds a special, very special place in my heart. It was a, a wonderful experience. I made amazing friends. And what was the work that you were doing while you were there? Yeah, so I was working for Mana Project. We had all kinds of programs. Our kind of like home base was this community center that we had. And through that community center, we had we offered all kinds of programs. We offered English classes, of course, but we also offered like nutrition classes, physical education classes, women's health classes, cooking classes, all kinds of things. And then we also worked in partnership with local grassroots organizations, grassroots nonprofits, and we just partnered up with them and helped them with whatever their mission was. So we worked with a local woman's shelter that housed adolescent teen moms who are at risk. And then we also worked with another organization that provided swim therapy to children with disabilities. It, it really ran the all gamut. It was all kinds of things. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So meanwhile, you also know that law school is the next step. So at some point, are you, you're considering that while in, in Ecuador or how did yes. that work? So actually, yeah, I got ahead of myself. Before I left for Ecuador, I did take the LSAT. So basically it was like that summer. So that part was done. Yep. Summer after I graduated, I was studying, I took the LSAT. And then once that was finished, I went to Ecuador and then I literally came while I was in Ecuador is when I got my like law school acceptances and stuff. Cause I had already submitted those before I left the country. I decided which law school I was going to go to while I was in Ecuador, which is a strange experience. Cause I didn't get the opportunity to go tour schools. I didn't go to admitted students mm -hmm. days or anything like that. And then once I left Ecuador, I had like a week in between Ecuador and then starting law school. So it was, it was a whirlwind, but it was a great experience. That's wonderful. Okay. So a couple of things about the timing. Sure. So just for once again, for someone who's thinking about law school, typically if someone's going to go straight from undergrad to law school, they likely would have maybe even taken the LSAT sometime in their junior year, that summer before senior year. Is that right? Yeah. And then you would start applying. If you're early bird, you might even start applying your like fall of your senior year right. into that second semester senior year. Yes. So you Go know where you're going that fall. Mm -hmm. But for you, it made sense because you knew you wanted a gap year. So yep. you're doing things basically the summer after. Yes, exactly. And so on. And then so how did you decide on NYU remotely, be it like you weren't, you couldn't, you yeah. didn't go see it, yeah. but you did go to NYU. What made you choose NYU? It's funny because once again, it's kind of the same situation with how I picked undergraduate school. I never thought I was going to end up at NYU. In fact, when I was like applying to law schools, NYU was the very last application I submitted. And the only reason why I submitted it was because the applications were still open and a lot of the essays that I'd already submitted to other schools kind of like overlapped. They worked. Yeah, yeah, it all here, worked. Let me, let me just copy paste, done. Right. <laughs> and I actually, it was really late when I submitted that. It was in like almost in January or maybe even in January when I submitted it. But I, I guess it worked out for me. And I'd never seen myself going to New York, which is different because in undergrad, I was trying to go to the East Coast. That's right. That's right. So it was, it was a really weird turn of events. But once I got that acceptance, I was like, oh, wow, this could be another adventure because, you know, I adventured to South America somewhere I'd never been before. Absolutely loved it. I knew just from prior experience, I loved living in cities or I just love cities mm -hmm. in general, city life. Like I love San Francisco. I loved Los Angeles. Los Angeles isn't really a city, but that's a different conversation. So I was like, why not New York City? 
so that's ultimately why I decided. And then also too, I, I'll be honest, it was also rankings. Mm-hmm. It was a highly it's a ranked great, school. It's a great law school. Yeah, it's a great law school. It has great programs. I was interested in reproductive rights and things like that. And they had a clinic that focused on that. And, you know, all the factors kind of lined up. So that's why I decided to go with it. Okay. Another thing I'll highlight for people considering law school, often the earlier you apply during that process, it ups your chances because these schools are often filling their seat, filling their spots on a rolling basis. Mm -hmm. So when you said it's a little late in the season, but it still worked out for me, for anybody who's on the cusp where there's like a reach school, often it's better to do it early Early. because if they have 452 spots, you know, versus 12 it's better to be considered a little bit earlier. But you got your wish, whether or not it was your wish at the time of ending up on the East Coast. So what was it like? You started at NYU. Was there an adjustment for you? Was it? Yeah. What was the law school adjustment like? It was actually really interesting going to NYU because I found out that two people I already knew from undergrad also just so happened to be starting at NYU Law. I didn't even know that they were interested in law school. One of them was a woman named Chloe who was in my sorority, but we weren't really close friends. We just knew each other, but she was starting out there. And then another friend, his name was Dylan. He was in another one of my student groups that I was a part of, but we also weren't close, but we all became very close once we got to NYU and we're all put actually in the same section. So I guess when you enter into a law school, I think the way most law schools do it, if not all, is they separate their entering class into sections. And it's basically the law school equivalent of homeroom. So you have all of your- That's right. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah. You have all your 1L classes together. Those two people ended up being in my section. So I will say our section was known for being like especially tight-knit, which was really cool and a really great experience for us. My section. How big was the section, by the way, at NYU? I think it was pretty big. It was like 80. Oh, that's going to be my guess. Yeah. It's like 70, 80. Okay. Right. Yeah. It was around that. There were a lot of us, but we were all very close. I made so many friends. I mean, I loved undergraduate school. Don't get me wrong. But I think law school is when I really blossomed. Like that's when I had. <laughs> like I was thriving. <laughs> I was. I was. I was thriving for like what the first semester and a half and then we went remote, but it was amazing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's a whole nother discussion. It well, is. and so you did get. You did get to start, and it's so interesting talking to attorneys and even law students that are, you know, kind of around around the same age as you or entered law school around the same time because that pandemic impact. Did you find that studying for law school was any different than how you'd studied in the past? Was that academic adjustment what you expected it to be? Yeah, it was absolutely an academic adjustment. It was kind of difficult for me. I think the problem was that I had been planning to go to law school for so long, and so once you're actually kind of like living your dreams, you feel a lot of pressure. You think things are supposed to go a certain way. And if they don't line up that way, I know I'm speaking vaguely, but basically I had my methods for studying throughout high school and undergrad that had served me really well. But once I got to law school, I was just like, this is a whole different ball game. I need to like switch things up. It's unlike anything I've done before. And I did reinvent the wheel and I wouldn't recommend that for anyone. You don't need to because that's the no. thing. Everyone's convinced you and it kind of can get into your mind of like, right. here's how you study for law school. You yeah. need to be outlining and you need to be in study yeah. groups. And you know what? For some people, those things are great. But I think for me, I had a eureka moment. This is forever ago. And I was like, hold on. I don't have to outline, or at least I don't have to study the way other people do. I should still study the way that works for me. And Mm -hmm. that turns out it can vary because we're all different. Right. And no one's going to tell you that, but you think I must be like the prototypical law student. And no, no, no. (laughs) study the way that works for you. 
Yeah, it's really tough. It's tough because law school is just so different from anything you've done before. You have, I guess it depends on like the school that you go to, but at least in my law school, most of the exams are open book, which means you have all of your notes at your disposal. Like you can download anything from the internet. You don't have access to the internet during the exam, but you can literally bring in whatever materials you want and you still have to take the test and it's still going to be extremely hard and it's a four hour exam. So those were really difficult and it was really overwhelming. And, you know, you you mentioned outlines. We would outline, (laughs) I would try to outline from scratch. For me, I found out later on that doesn't work outlining from scratch. And like my outlines would be like 120 pages long and it was absurd. It was. (laughs) You're making making me laugh though, because this reminds me of one of my torts professor at Michigan who still teaches professor Sherman Clark. He was making fun of the law students. He's like, I don't understand you guys in this outlining. He's like, you have an outline. It's the index. It's in the front of your book. I don't know what you <laughs> yeah. guys are doing. <laughs> but but, but truly, what you're doing is trying to learn the information where you know how to navigate it enough or even can recall it yeah. so that you can just apply it in whatever context. At one of my law school war stories, my last class ever at Michigan was a class called Federal Courts, mm-hmm. which was everyone was like, oh, that's the hardest class. Yeah, I never took Anybody that who wants to be a Supreme Court clerk <laughs> yep. takes that class. Yep. Fortunately for me, I was like a semester off because I started early Mm. back when Michigan started a a section summer. So I didn't know anybody in my federal courts class because they weren't in my section. Mm. So I had none of the like, oh, so-and-so is really smart. Mm -hmm. But maybe this was like, this could have gone really wrong. Maybe it was hubris. But I remember I sold my book back before the exam because I had to just go immediately after. (laughs) (laughs) And it was open book and I had a few notes, but like I knew this stuff and I love constitutional law and I just knew it cold. And we had that what, two or three hour exam, we sit down, starts, the guy next to me immediately opens his book. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, dude, you're in so much trouble. (laughs) And that ended up being the only solid A that I got in all of law school because I got a, I was like queen to the A minus. Uh huh. I get that. So my GPA, my grades were, were, were good, but I did not, that was my only A and it just, it felt so good because I was like right at the end there, I understand this and now I'm leaving. But what you said makes complete sense. And people also don't realize that about how law school works. And other tips, talk to other people who've been in the class. Yeah. Talk to your professors. Yes. You don't have to figure this out in a vacuum. You're paying a whole lot of money not to, actually. Right. But I would love, Kate, to because we could talk about all the things forever. You did touch on the fact that I think that you were a judicial ex- extern at one point, that you've worked in other settings. But I kind of want to fast forward you to that part that I know a lot of law students are curious about, which is, so how do you get this firm job? Like, where does Foley and Lardner come onto the scene? Sure. So the pandemic hit during my 1L year. So when we ended up doing OCI and all that, we actually called it WIP, W-I-P. So it wasn't called OCI because for us, it happened during winter. It was a really interesting time. What does that stand for? Winter interview program, I think. Got it. I'm not like sure. That. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's, that works to it, me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So fully, the reason why fully stood out to me actually was because in my screener interview, it was with Sarah and Alyssa. They mentioned to me how fully, when fully accepts students for their program fully brings them on with an eye towards their future at the firm. And that was something that really stuck with me because as I was going through the whole process of just speaking to people about why they're going to firms, things like that, a lot of people were kind of planning on going to a law firm, staying there for a little while, and then jumping ship and doing something else, which there's no problem with that. For me personally, though, I just don't really like 
I didn't like the idea of going into a job with an exit plan. Planning your exit. Oh my God. I love that you said that, Kate, because I'll talk to law students. Yeah. Who, they have planned the next 17 years of their life. Sure. They're like, well, I'm going to go to a firm and then I'm going to go in house. Yeah. And then I'm, and I was like, that's cool and all, but could you just be where you are for a minute? Right. I want to define myself at a firm where I didn't feel like I had to leave and I didn't feel like the clock for my burnout was ticking. Like I just, I wanted to be somewhere where I felt like I had real meaningful choice of like, if I want to stay, I can stay and my life isn't going to be ruined or if I want to leave, I can, but like, I wanted that to be a real choice for me. And so that was something that was really special to me and kind of set the tone for fully as I understood it. And that really proved to be a very consistent theme as I got to know the firm more and more where my experience so far has been that the firm sees you as a whole person, right? It's not one of those firms where first week they expect you to be in here until 2 a.m. I've heard of that happening at other places. That's not the case here. In fact, during my first week, well, my second, the first week was orientation. During, during my second week, though, it was kind of like a transition period where I was eased into things as opposed to just kind of like thrust into the middle of it. But that's not to say I didn't have work opportunities, too, because fully choose, at least here in New York, and I think in other offices, though, too, because it's not like there's hundreds of new associates. There's smaller classes, which means more meaningful work opportunities for everyone, which means more meaningful growth, more meaningful experience. You're an actual member of the team, a valued member of the team, as opposed to being like, I don't know, one of like 30 of your class. And that's just something that I really wanted. For me, it was difficult deciding between California and New York because I knew I wanted to live in New York, but I didn't want to be in the mega firm setting. I didn't want to be at a place where, you know, there's like 300 to 500 attorneys. Most people don't know the names of other people on different floors and things like that. Like that just wasn't what I was going for. And I knew in California, most of the the offices are smaller. So when I found out that Foley in New York isn't one of those huge offices, that was just another bonus for me. And yeah, it really worked out. And then you summered with us. I did. I did summer with you. Now I'm trying to remember. I have to place you in time. No problem. Were you a remote or partially remote? I'm partially trying to remember remote. which. Yes. We were, so okay. yeah, we were not the full remote class. We were the partially remote class. I was fortunate because I was in the city. So I was able to come into the office basically whenever I wanted, but, but it wasn't like expected of me to. My counterpart, Sabrina, who is also a summer associate, she was up in Ithaca. So she wasn't able to come in every day, but there was like a two week period where she was down. I think it was like two weeks. I don't remember exactly, but there was a period where she was down here. We both got to go in together and that was really helpful. I really feel for the people who had to go through their summer associate program fully remote because it's just, it's difficult to get to know a firm that way, I think. And being able to come in person, like fully made every effort to help people who were remote feel connected. And I do think that they did as good of a job as they could. But at the end of the day, there is no replacement for... It's not, right. It's not exactly the same. No, it's but not. It's so I think of the podcast I've recorded around this time as being also interesting time capsules. <laughs> so Kate, I hope in like seven or 10 years, yeah. we're like talking about when you were on this, this show and you go back and you listen, you're like, oh my gosh, remote and pandemic. I know. And when you work with law students navigating, you'll be like, well, no, when I did this, we were in a global pandemic. Things <laughs> yeah. were a little bit different. <laughs> right. I know. And, and 
Well, and I sort of skated past that because I've talked to a few other summers who either were in the midst of being partially remote at the firm. So if someone's really curious about that experience, they can they can go back and listen. Sure. But I think a lot of the things you just highlighted about Foley are absolutely true. We are obviously a very large law firm with 1,100 lawyers and 25 offices, I think, at this point. But because we have so many offices, a number of them aren't enormous, right? We have a few offices that are, you know, the hundred plus or hundreds of attorneys. And we have a number of others that are, you know, in that call it 20 to 80 lawyer range. So I really like that that resonated with you. And as we start winding down, I do want you to say a few words about your practice and how you decided on your practice. I decided I wanted to go with litigation. I always, I knew going into all of this that I wanted to do litigation. I think a lot of that has to do with my background. Being in the courtroom growing up and everything and seeing litigators at work, that was kind of like my original conception of what a lawyer is. And of course, now I understand that there are so many different ways. There's a whole transactional side of the house that never even... They don't even think about court. They yeah. just make documents and maybe litigators fight about it 15 years later, right. but that's not their thing. It's wild to me still <laughs> to this day though. Like that's so it's so different. But no, litigation was something that I just always kind of clung to. I like reading, I like writing. So that's why I decided. And then I was fortunate also to find out that the New York office here does have a pretty big litigation practice. So it was it, it was a good place for me. It was definitely a good fit. Yeah, it does. And I'll say one thing about that you highlighted about Foley, really looking at the personalistically and also having the career in mind. Part of that has to do with our structure. Mm-hmm. So if someone pulls our data, you're going to see we have a lot of partners. We have a lot of equity partners. Yep. And we have just about as many partners as we have associates or people who are not equity partners. Mm-hmm. So the firm is not a triangle with like a very small tip, meaning, hey, a bunch of you need to leave to reach the pinnacle, which is equity partnership. Mm -hmm. There really is room if somebody wants to become an equity partner at the firm. And I think also something we don't talk enough about, we're not going to talk a lot about it right now either, is just part of starting at a law firm is seeing if you like practicing at a law firm. Like there's no substitute for it unless you've perhaps been a paralegal Mm -hmm. and have really seen the life. Most people coming in don't really know what it's like to practice at this level. And of course, we hope that everyone we bring in loves it. But the bottom line is you just don't know what it is. Of course, yeah. (laughs) I certainly didn't. Right. right? You get exposure to it as a summer associate. Mm -hmm. But still, it takes years, I think, to start understanding like the life cycle of litigation or deal work or IP or whatever you're doing. And I think students really need to, not just not students, but early, new lawyers, junior lawyers need to give themselves grace yes. in that, which is fun having you on, Kate, because I sometimes think of someone like yourself as the missing link in the sense that you rarely get a preview of the brand new, brand new big law attorney, because by the time our summers show up next year, you'll have done the ramp up. Yep. So right now you aren't even, are you even at a month yet? I don't think no, so. I'm on my third no, week. No, it's like, it's three, <laughs> you're three weeks. <laughs> yep. And so, and so if anyone listens to this podcast and is like, oh, I really wanted her to talk about nuts and bolts of her practice. Well, she just started her practice. Right. <laughs> so if anything, we will have you back on in a few years to talk more about that. That'd but cool. it was... Well, it was a pleasure for me to see all of you in person. We we touched on this, but what Foley does when we're not in a global pandemic, mm-hmm. we fly all of our new associates to one of our offices for multiple days of training, which frankly, Kate, you can let me know right now, has to be a little bit overwhelming because there's a ton of info jam-packed. Yep. But I also think it's cool to start at the firm. You're there for like a day yeah. and then you get on a plane and you go get to see the rest <laughs> of your class. It was actually 
such a good experience. Genuinely, I did not know what to expect. I was like, okay, we're going to go to Dallas. We're going to do these trainings. I don't know what kind of trainings. Like, we'll see. I had no expectations going into it. But by the end of it, I was genuinely sad to be leaving everyone because it, I got to meet so many different people. I got to meet a lot of I got to put a face to a lot of names that you hear kind of floating around, but to not only be able, you know, not only see them, but, you know, get to meet them, get to have food with them. You know, we went to the state fair, get to share like a fried ice cream with a them. Fried everything. Yeah. Fried everything. Fried everything. It was all fried. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really great. And then also getting to just to meet the other associates that were part of my incoming class. That was really great too. And something that really to me was special, Sabrina and I were marveling at it we genuinely liked every person that we met. Like we genuinely connected with them. And we we're like, if we were thrown into an office with any mix of the people that we've met here, we'd be happy. And I think that that's kind of a testament to how consistent the culture is at the firm, which, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for other firms because of course I haven't worked there, but I think that's pretty impressive because there are fully is ultimately a really big firm. There are a lot of different people, but it's nice to know that there's still this like intangible connection that just allows mm -hmm. you to get along with those people. And you, you do feel at home. I was really surprised. It was all very welcoming. Maybe it's the, it's the Midwest, Midwestern hospitality. The, I'll call it that Midwestern ethos that right. still pervades the firm a bit and like the, in the best way. In the best, in the best way. way. As a person who's only been on either coast and like does not know what the Midwest is whatsoever. It was actually, it was really nice and I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed meeting all the people. I recently, we I started a group me with like the other associates so we can stay connected. I have like group messages with like people from the Houston office and things like that. And it's, it's been really fun getting to stay connected and we're all looking forward to seeing each other again for the firm retreat at Orlando. So it was really cool. Yes. I built real connections I, from that I orientation. I love this. And also I like that you shared that you have a group me as a member of the talent team. I'll be like, guys, we need to tell someone to put this out on the group me because they're not really going to read their email. True. <laughs> Oh, but anyway, with that, I do want to start winding down sure. with my two last substantive questions. And the first one you may not have anything to say to, which is one, is there anything you wanted to mention that you haven't had a chance to? And then two, what is your advice to that law student or even someone thinking about law school? Just your takeaways for words of wisdom you can give them. Can I answer the second one first? I think there's probably something. Absolutely. Okay. So one thing that I think I would say maybe to a law student who's kind of like getting ready to graduate and entering the new chapter of starting their law career, I think it's important to, I think a lot of people are at least myself, I felt pressure to kind of fit the mold coming out of law school where it's like, okay, this is how I know that firms are run. This is how what I know the like typical attorney, how they dress, how they look, how they act. And it's true that like becoming a lawyer is an apprenticeship, meaning you observe and you put into practice what you observe. But at the same time, I think it's important for us being like a new generation of attorneys to embrace like what makes us different, like what new dimensions to the we can add to the legal culture, even from the small things. Like I was thinking about like, oh, are, you know, platform loafers, are they work appropriate? Things like that. It's just, we can put our own kind of spin on things. And I don't think you need to necessarily be constantly trying to make up for either your youth, because maybe you're a bit younger or your lack of experience. I think instead embrace that and recognize the fact that you were hired into the office because of what you've accomplished thus far in life. And no one expects you to be like a fully fledged attorney. 
So, you know, be careful about being quick to kind of erase the parts of yourself maybe that make you who you are and like the inexperienced part of you or the new part of you. Because I think that those being able to come into a legal office with a fresh set of eyes and like different experiences really can only add it's to valuable. the office. Yeah. In a positive yes. way. And I think, yeah, we don't want to stamp that out. So I've been trying to go. No. Through- and the thing is you can't, all you'll do is suppress it, which right. takes a tremendous amount of energy. And in a few years, you'll be miserable. And I think everything you said goes back to that grace that you need to give yourself as you're figuring out something new. Yeah. Absolutely. And, so, and that's how I feel. That's just what I've been trying to do is move through these like early weeks of being in the office and trying to understand how I'm going to join as a member of the team and learn to do things a new way, but also what parts of myself can I try to integrate and like introduce like maybe new traditions or new fun things to do. I don't know. So I guess that would be my tidbit. And then I think the other thing for law school. So one thing that I wanted to say about law school is that being in law school is a very different environment. At least for me, when I was in undergraduate school, UCLA is a really big school, right? And there's like all kinds of people that perform at all kinds of different academic levels and have all kinds of different priorities. And then when you go to a law school, it's a much smaller community and it's a much more focused community. And it's like, it's a lot of other people too, who are very similarly accomplished as you. And for me, that was a little bit of a culture shock because one of the things I prided myself in was my ability to perform academically. That was definitely a source of pride for me, as I think it is for many people who have ambitions to go to law school. High achievers. They're all high achievers. And so when you go into these kinds of settings, and I think for most law schools, there's a mandatory curve in terms of grading. And that can be very unmotivating and it can be intimidating and it's difficult. It's just, it's all of the above. And in a lot of ways, law school was a humbling experience for me in that I was never the student that was performing at the very tippy top 10% of my class. And it was really difficult for me to come to terms with that. But I think that understanding that you're not alone, there are a lot of people who are not in the top 10% of the class, but they are also very accomplished and they are just as worthy to be in this profession as you are. I think it's something to keep in mind and it's not something to be ashamed of. And I hope that others will kind of let that be a motivation for them to like try even harder, but just to compete with themselves, not necessarily with other students, because if there's always going to be another person in the room who's smarter or, you know, maybe more familiar with the concept or Oof. something like that. Yep. And you got, you just got to get comfortable what you with should, it. Don't, don't hang yourself worth on that. Right. I think that's what I hear you say. Yeah, like, don't, don't hang, hang yourself. It's really it. hard not to, if you have been, but Kate, that is some fabulous advice. Thank you so sure. much for being on the show. Last thing I will ask is if people have comments or questions, want to reach out to you can they feel free to find you on foley's website and send you an email yeah absolutely send me an email on my foley my foley email i'd be happy to answer any questions i love it when people reach out to me all right thank you so much kate thank you thank you for listening to the path and the practice i hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time and if you did enjoy it please share it subscribe and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 